0: When I work with women, when they say, I want to lose weight, they often mean, I want love, I want respect, I want visibility. um, I want to have access to clothing I like. I want to um, be taken seriously as a colleague or a worker. Um, That's what they often almost always mean when they say, I want to be thin. Um, And so what what we're seeing here is that diet culture positions itself as kind of a salesman or a broker that says, if you do this, if you diet, you can have love, visibility, success, um, respect, right? Things that every single human wants, things that every single human needs. And so when you, uh, when you approach someone and say, you can either be a good girl and get all this nice stuff that humans want, or you can be a bad girl and not get anything, Um, (laughs) like that's not actually a choice. Like Because I think the truth is fundamentally women who are dieting, people who are dieting, believe that they get to be fully human as long as they're thin, which is what fat phobia teaches us.
1: That was Virgie Tovar, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 139. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything, no one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers, and I can't give you a miraculous 10-day six-step life hack plan for anything. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, I'm honestly so over that approach, and my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, so there's your little warning for that, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded. How awesome is that? And that's made possible by incredible regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is, and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, my hope is that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. When you get over to Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with, and will hopefully continue to grow over time. But higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. Being able to pay all of our guests has been a dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, then that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. So please know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide for us. When you support this show, you're basically just saying loudly and proudly that these voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind-the-scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. Oh, If you think it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait until you start getting my emails. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, such as Black Lives Matter, the Venture Out Project, and the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. So you can feel really good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. Over on the Patreon page, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. They seriously become something that I look forward to all the time. So once more, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Virgie Tovar. Birgie is an author, activist, and one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on fat discrimination and body image. She's the founder of Babe Camp, a four-week online course designed to help women who are ready to break up with diet culture, and she started the hashtag campaign, Lose Hate, Not Weight. She writes a weekly column called Take the Cake on Ravishly.com, and the Feminist Press will be publishing her forthcoming book of nonfiction called You Have the Right to Remain Fat, which comes out this month. In this episode, Virgie talks about diet culture and fat phobia, what they are, how they function, and why we need to break free from that oppression. She shares honest personal stories about mourning the thin fantasy, the importance of desire and letting yourself want what you want, the ways in which fat women are often treated differently than thin women in romantic and sexual relationships, and so much more. I read Virgie's new book in one sitting, seriously sat down with a cup of tea, finished the whole thing. It's a short read. And it was such a delight to have her back on the show to talk about the book and everything else that she's been working on and thinking about. I hope you'll buy the book for yourself and that you enjoy hearing and learning from Virgie as much as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. We are good to go. Virgie, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So the last time I had to look at the date this morning, you were on the show was April of last year, 2017. And I would love for you to catch me up on a couple of the most significant things or maybe most fun things or whatever you want to talk about that have happened for you in the past year or so.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, (laughs) I mean, um, I've gone through a lot of emotional transformation. Um, it's really wild, right? Like I decided to take a really big step back away from my family. I come from kind of, I have like a really fraught relationship and have sort of just a dysfunctional childhood. And and uh, my body kind of knew that I needed to make a big move away from the relationship Especially with my mother and grandmother, the way that it stood, and and rather than suppress that voice, which I had been doing forever and ever and ever, I decided to really listen to it, and it's been kind of, I don't know. I mean, I I was just talking to my brother about this the other day. We were like in Muir Woods, and there's all these like amazing, majestic redwoods everywhere, and I'm sort of telling him like it felt like I had been. Living in the emotional equivalent of like a tiny room my entire life, and then like I randomly one day found a door that led to like a garden that had a mansion in it and like that's what I feel like emotionally since making that making that choice and so that's been like extraordinary and also overwhelming, right because I don't know I was like a really emotionally shut down because I, I hadn't had the space to really process. All of the stuff that had happened to me, um, and the fact that I didn't get to really have a childhood in a lot of ways, and and now it's like the whole world of emotion has opened up, and I'm like, oh my god, is this how humans feel all the time? This is so much. Or like, how do how do people just walk around feeling like these extraordinary, you know, feelings of like sadness and happiness and, and all, you know, and disappointment and, um, and empathy and like all these things that I had felt, but that were very, very, very muted are now kind of just this robust technicolor emotional world that I'm living in. And so adjusting to that new reality has been really exciting, um, and daunting at times. And then, um, I've just been doing a ton of work around, Fat activism, fat liberation, writing about it, cultural criticism. I have a new book that's about to come out. And so I have been focusing a lot on that, like really – reading, researching, um, doing a lot of thinking about what are the connections between diet culture and, um, the history of the way women have been treated. What, what are the connections between diet culture? Um, and you know, how we consume, like how we engage with capitalism and stuff like that. So, um, I don't know, those are like two, two highlights. Last thing I've also fallen in and out of love at least three times. Um, which has just been totally wild and like amazing. And um I'm currently just starting to see an adorable coffee roaster named Andrew. The end
1: (laughs) of the update. I love that. I love that how (laughs) how far reaching that update is. I wanna Go back to what you were saying about your family because I think the honesty around that is really beautiful and rare because it – I don't know. It's like a cultural taboo, right? Like it's your family. You're supposed to have this really close relationship forever and just like weather the storm of no matter what that looks like. And I think that that's really can be quite damaging. And like you said, can keep us small. And I would imagine that that was a difficult decision for you to make and then actually go through the process of. And so to hear that on the other side, it's not like you said that everything's perfect, but that that hard decision was worth it, I think is an important message.
0: Yeah, for sure, and I mean, I think that I've and and the further the more distance I have from um my family and from you know that whole situation, I realize how there there are these weird connections between um like actually diet culture and like that kind of thinking and the way that we're expected to just suck it up with our family and and the whole idea right is like we we can't right like us not questioning our relationship to our family and not setting boundaries, et cetera, it has a particular function with the individuals in the family, right? Um, because, um, you know, people, like, like, like nobody wants to be questioned about how they operate, how they parent, um, how they decide to be a daughter or a son or, you know, a, like a child, a sibling, right? Nobody wants to do that work. But on a Sort of bigger cultural scale, the idea is you don't get to question family because family is the cornerstone of our culture. And if you're questioning family as a unit, you're questioning the culture and the way that it operates, right? And so I think that um, there's been these interesting connections between my decision to stop dieting and fight against fat phobia and this decision to take a really critical look at my family and trust myself rather than just continuously obey the expectation that I respect my family at any cost, you know?
1: Absolutely. I mean, th- th- this idea, like you said, it could be lots of different systems. Like anytime you're talking about a system or like an institution or, you know, a unit, which I think, fit especially in America, I think that family definitely is that it's yes. like anytime you're in a place of saying something like, oh, well, this is just how it is that there, it's worthwhile to pause and be like, well, hang on, <laughs> like, <laughs> who's benefiting from it being that way? And do yes. I have to continue to participate in that or not? Totally. Yes. So, with your book, which I'm super excited to talk about, I feel very grateful to have gotten an advanced copy of it. I I mean, I literally made myself a cup of tea. I sat down, I read the whole thing, and like didn't move. It was so good. So, (laughs) it's also really nice. Just obviously, we're going to talk about the substance of the book, but it's quite short. And I really like that. I feel like there aren't enough sort of like, I was going to use the word manifesto, which I don't think is the right word, but something where it's like, it doesn't have to be 600 pages to be incredibly impactful. Like, I feel like there was nothing in this book that didn't need to be there, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think the, I mean, for people who are not intimately familiar with publishing, like 60,000 words is the industry standard of of, that's considered a full work. Um, I fought really hard to keep this book at 20,000 words for that very reason. I mean, some of it was just the fact that I knew exactly what I wanted to say before the book even came out. And I felt like it was really, really, before I even started writing the book, I knew exactly what I wanted to say. I knew what, what I was passionate about saying. Um, and I do think the book is a manifesto. And, and interestingly, so it's being released in different countries and the UK on the cover, it says, you have the right to remain fat, a manifesto. So the American version doesn't have that, but it's very prominent on the UK version, which is interesting. But anyway, um, yeah, I wanted to make it something that felt, um, you know, digestible. And I wanted to build the argument in a very particular way. And I knew that I also frankly, um, just in my schedule and my time, like I knew that I didn't have the capacity to do a 60,000 word work because I mean, even though, even though, you know, 60,000 is just technically three times 20,000 when you're, when you're talking about laying out a book, it goes from the writing period extends by orders of magnitude. Every time you add sort of 10,000 words, it's not like you know, it's not like oh, we go from writing for twenty days to writing to for forty days. It goes from like you're writing for twenty days to you're writing to like a hundred days because you have to start pacing the argument differently, right? And it's like so. There's, I think that for me, I was really proud that I negotiated hard for that twenty thousand word limit, and you know, and obviously I see that. I, I felt very empowered to do that because I'm, I'm surrounded by, I think, a lot of people, women in particular, who are just kind of imposing more and more limits and boundaries on what they're willing to output, you know?
1: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's that's so well said. So when you decided to write this book, what was your number one goal? Like, what are you hoping for once it goes out into the world?
0: Yeah. I mean, I say in the book, right, I write with great urgency to women directly, And so, I mean, for me, it's like, as I was writing it, like this, it, it actually took a shockingly short amount of time to write this book because that's how urgently I felt about it. I mean, essentially I kind of, I don't know, like it's kind of an intense metaphor, but like my desire is to like go into women's lives and like. And fling open their eyelids, right? Like the book is really, for me, it's about like we need to wake up and recognize what is happening. We need to wake up and 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 like give ourselves the right and give ourselves the permission to recognize that we're being subjugated, we're being used, we're being manipulated and there's a great benefit that is being given to the culture that we're not really, in my opinion, ultimately benefiting from. And so for me, it's about like really like having these series of, of like kind of mic drop moments where in my mind, right? Like I can't sit down and talk to every single woman, um, about this issue, right? Like over coffee for two hours and, and just walk her through exactly what's going on. Um, especially around diet culture, but but this book is meant to be that is meant to sort of me be you know in my mind it's like this is the moment where you know we're we're sitting together i'm holding your hand i'm walking you through exactly how patriarchy is stealing stuff from you and how you need to just say no i need to fight back right and that like that this is uh this is a matter right like what's at stake is our joy. What's at stake is our very humanity. And so, um, I, this book is about that. It's, it's about, you know, cre- like really, um, like, I think a lot of times, um, we know something's wrong. Like if you're a woman You know something is wrong with this culture. You feel it in your body. You've been taught the problem is you. You've been taught the solution to that is to destroy yourself by making yourself as small and preoccupied with your body as possible. Um, And what the book is saying is it's not you. That feeling that something is wrong isn't you. And like the moment that you can admit that, right? The moment that you can like accept that there's nothing wrong with you, that's the moment when you can gain your power. That's the moment when we can. Can like reclaim our lives, and for a lot of women, that struggle really kind of the home, the the the, the home base of that struggle is their relationship to food and weight.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it would be helpful. Um, I mean, obviously you've been on the show before there've been other folks on with whom we've had similar conversations, but you know, maybe for someone who might be new to your work or to these concepts, can you quickly define or describe what you mean when you use the phrases diet culture and fat phobia?
0: Yeah. Um, so fat phobia is an ideology based in bigotry that positions fat people as naturally inferior and positions weight loss as always positive, no matter how it was achieved. So fat phobia in a lot of ways is, um, it's, it's like sort of a, it's an idea. It's a system of power. Um, it's a system of control that essentially uses social punishment and discipline, in order to get people to conform to like and especially women, right? Like to as small a body as possible. Um at the end of the day, the the purpose of fat phobia is to create submission in women. And so and I say in the book, right, like When people talk about how thinness is attractive and sexy and like you know people want it because it's it's beautiful, what's really happening is that um, the submission is actually what's being eroticized and what's being aggrandized, not thinness itself. Like thinness is just a secondary characteristic. I argue in the book of um, of like what is the real gem, which is women's submission. And then talk about diet culture. So dieting, I'm going to break it down a little bit. So dieting itself is The way I define it is like any behavior um, around food or movement that's meant to lead to um, either the sort of sustaining of a low weight or the achievement of a low weight. Um, And so no matter what what we call it, right, the the word diet is increasingly going out of vogue in our culture. And so no matter what we're calling it, if ultimately – like if it wouldn't be appealing if it didn't lead to weight loss or the maintenance of a small body – Like, it's a diet, essentially. And so when we think about dieting, right, yes, it's an individual behavior that people do, but on a grander scale, it's a cultural expectation that we're consistently controlling our food and manipulating our bodies through movement, what we call exercise, um, in order to achieve a certain kind of body, like an increasingly smaller body. And I, the reason I use the phrase diet culture is because there is an inescapable component to it. Um, like when something goes from an individual behavior like dieting to something that on a grand cultural scale is completely inescapable, uh, that's, why, that's when it becomes like a culture, like sort of a, like a, a major component or touchstone of the culture. And like I often ask people, right, can you imagine going like one single day without somebody talking about how much fat or calories is in something or whether chips or a cupcake are evil and and something is good or how you need to work, how somebody needs to work off whatever meal they just had. And most people cannot imagine a single day where they get to, You know, not talk about food or not witness a conversation about food or weight loss or any number of things around like making your body as small as possible. And it's that inescapability that turns it into a culture, right? Like if you can't opt out entirely, right? Like that means that something's happening on this major scale. And I think this is the situation uh, that we find ourselves in in the U.S for sure.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the opting out is what's interesting because even when you make the decision, okay, I am not going to engage in these behaviors. I'm not going to engage in these conversations. I'm going to consciously choose, you know, to the best of my ability, what uh, media I'm consuming, you know, whether that's social media or whatever, right? Like you can be as vigilant as possible. And I think it's actually only once you make that decision that you start to realize how much of a cultural problem it is, because it's when you opt out of the conversation, then you see like, Oh shit. Everybody's talking about this. And I especially like um the point that you brought up that this idea that dieting we like no we're not supposed to talk about that, right? <laughs> or like it's it is that gone out of fashion, like you said. But it's yes. all cloaked in this like health and wellness and other things. There's a lot of other buzzwords that, like you said, essentially, if the point of the behavior is to lead to a smaller body size, like, okay, well, that's dieting. And when you opt out of it personally, I think you, and I think this is true with other topics as well. Once you start to make those personal changes and you look around, you're like, oh yeah, this is literally everywhere.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the things that, um, always surprises me when I'm working with, um, with clients with women, um, is that the place that they're experiencing the most fat phobia is the workplace. Um, essentially, right. Like, um, because of the sort of the gender segregation that is very common in the workplace, at least in the U S right. Um, typically women are working with all other women. And, uh, and so it's staggering, right? Like, I mean, I have these conversations all the time with people, even with friends where it's like, how do you, how do you negotiate conversations that are happening around you, like in the workplace, in social situations, in the cafe, at a party, at any number of things, um, where it doesn't exactly feel appropriate to set a boundary, but the, but the, constant diet talk just does not ever stop, you know, um, and you feel kind of enlisted into it. And then like, kind of like what you're saying, right. All of a sudden when you're not engaging, it's really clear that, you know, you really stand out as the person who's not engaging in talking about, you know, the fitness challenge or, you know, the juicing or the, like using your break to go and, um, run around the, the parking lot for 10 minutes, or whatever, um, it really, you know, you really start to feel, I mean, when I talk to people about this, they really feel like the odd man out consistently, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, this ties back to something else that I know you talk about in the book and elsewhere, this idea that women don't diet because they want to, but because they feel that they have to. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Can you actually elaborate on that a little bit more?
0: Yeah. And so, so essentially when I, work with women when they say, I want to lose weight. They often mean, I want love. I want respect. I want visibility. I want to have access to clothing. I like, I want to um, be taken seriously as a colleague or a worker. Um, That's what they often almost always mean when they say, I want to be thin. And so what, what we're seeing here is that diet culture positions itself as kind of a salesman or a broker. That says if you do this, if you diet, you can have love, visibility, success, respect, right? Things that every single human wants, things that every single human needs. And so when you uh, when you approach someone and say, you can either be a good girl and get all this nice stuff that humans want, or you can be a bad girl and not get anything. Um, like that's not actually a choice. Like because I think the truth is fundamentally, women who are dieting, people who are dieting, believe that they get to be fully human as long as they're thin, which is what fat phobia teaches us, which is what the culture teaches us, especially if you're a woman. And so, right? What I'm what I'm saying is no, no one is. Physically imprisoning you and forcing you to only eat certain kinds of foods and work out a certain amount of time no that 's not actually what 's happening, but there is there are, there are these sophisticated cultural mechanisms systems of rewards and punishment that convince women that they won 't get love. And respect and visibility unless they diet. And what I'm arguing is that is high order manipulation, and that essentially creates a creates like a non choice, right? It's like it's not really a choice if you're saying that this person's not going to have access to like their human needs unless they do this thing. And so that that's kind of what I mean when I'm talking about that.
1: Yeah, I think that's brilliantly said. This reminds me of a conversation that came up last fall at one of the Real Talk Live events. We were talking about essentially beauty standards or the beauty ideal specifically around body hair. This is like yeah, went in kind of a pivot thing. And we were talking about sort of how to identify what is a cultural thing or what feels like an oppressive standard, with the example of um, that I think someone brought up of okay, if you lived alone on a desert island, would you ever get a bikini wax ever again? Right. Like does that thing that is painful like are you doing that and it's that's fine choice everyone can do whatever they want with their bodies right but that idea of oh If I was alone on a desert island, what, and that was just one example, what are all the things that I wouldn't do because they don't inherently bring me pleasure or joy, or they don't support like what I want, but I'm doing that as a means to either fit in or to get something or that there is like an interesting thing there. If you step back and be like, like you said, is this really a choice or is it something that I have to perform these different, whether it's like performing femininity or whatever the thing is in order to then get access to what that performance gives you.
0: Yeah, exactly and and I think the truth of the matter is um again and again and again what I hear is that you know women are living you know these kind of terrified lives because they have been taught that they have to do all this stuff they don't want to do if they want love. And and I think it's so I think it's so important to really like remind myself and remind everyone that love is a human right, right? Like people deserve love and dignity um, just because they're alive. They're like any system or human who puts conditions on love. Um, those aren't good things. Those aren't good people, right? Like those aren't people you want to be pursuing. And I think what's so hard is, I mean, as someone who was, you know, dieted and starved myself at times for two decades, I feel like, um, I was completely convinced that I was, I personally was ruining my chances of having meaningful relationships with amazing people because of my fatness. And in reality, I wasn't right. Like anybody who doesn't want to, love me because I am fat is not an amazing person. They're a garbage person. They're an asshole. Um, And it's totally okay to give ourselves permission to say, like, hey, guess what? I deserve human rights. I'm only down with people who are down with human rights. (laughs) And like, if you, um, if you have conditional, if your offer of love is conditional upon me submitting to a cultural body standard, then that's not love. And I don't want it because ultimately, right. Conditional love, quote unquote, isn't love at all, period. And like what, what we find is that like when we're, when we're um, investing our heart into situations that are conditional, it actually um, slowly but surely erodes our spirit. And, um, and I, I'm sort of saying, I'm encouraging us to kind of pull back the curtain, see that the wizard is this tiny, pathetic, little, like, fucker, and, um, and just sort of be like, all right, mystery solved. Now I'm going to go live my best life with people who uh, deserve my time and I'm going to have standards for who those people are. I'm going to set boundaries and anybody who isn't going to fit those, those boundaries and, and respect me and meet me where I'm at just has to go, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, and I feel like, you know, that's, that's a terrifying prospect. Um, especially living in our culture where women are essentially, I mean, the the truth is women are um, encouraged to have very small lives and encouraged to have small ambitions and yes, there, there it's true that we've made tons of legal advancements. And again, I talk about this in the book. Feminists have, made, feminists have created an environment where um, we have, as women, have made a lot of um, legal advances, right? Like we have the right to own a company. We have the right to have an abortion. We have the right to divorce. We have the right to um, demand like a, you know, an assault-free work environment, though obviously we've seen recently that doesn't necessarily mean it's not happening. Um, but right, we have these things on the books. That is fantastic. Don't want to belittle that. But what's important to recognize is the idea, the core ideology that women are inferior, that's all around us. That is all. It's living in our television. It's living on our phone. It's living in our Instagram accounts, living in our magazines. Right.
1: Definitely. I mean, and I think what you're speaking to this difference between the laws that are on the books, which as you pointed out, of course is great. And like progress in that regard is very necessary. And also that doesn't mean that all of this more nuanced sort of harder to see sometimes or pinpoint like versions of sexism and misogyny aren't happening all the time. It's like, just gets harder and harder to put language around. Yes, totally. Yes. You said something before about um, like wanting women to be able to have bigger ambitions and just like not live such small lives. And that was something that really stuck out for me in the book. One of the things that I highlighted when you were talking about your desire for women to live the life that we all deserve to live and that the key to that life is the unbridling of our desire. And I would love, for some reason, that like hit me a lot, this idea of about desire's role in this. Can you share what you mean by that?
0: Yeah. I mean, so... Right. Like, so desire and hunger are very connected, right? Um, And and I kind of, one of the things that I say in the book, right, is that like what diet culture, what fat phobia do is they extinguish, they extinguish that, or they seek to extinguish that very human desire for food and that very human access to pleasure that food gives us. Um, Like we were hardwired to enjoy food right like and it's it's extraordinary that diet culture is so powerful and sophisticated that it's stolen it's bypassed it's hijacked this thing that's built into our dna that's built into our bodies for me right like extinguishing hunger is about extinguishing pleasure and it's about extinguishing desire and right like when you when you don't have access to what you want you are easily manipulated. You are much more malleable. You're much more likely to be submissive, right? Because if you have lost access to what you want, you can't make demands because you don't right you can't you don't understand what they are and i mean i i i'm intimately aware of this right i'm not saying this in some sort of patronizing way like i'm deeply i mean i am still struggling right like especially in like romantic scenarios for example where i'm just like oh my god I've been taught that, um, in order to get love, I have to, you know, be much less boundary than I want to be or make less demands or do, 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 right. Maybe I'm not dieting anymore, but I'm still navigating all these conditions that are built around like access to love, access to belonging, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so like I'm intimately aware of this battle within myself too, but at the end of the day, right. Um, desire is about power. When we name what we want, we are expressing the unique desire um, that lives inside of us, right? Like every single human wants slightly different things. That's what's so extraordinary, right? There's like, there's diversity built into human nature, right? Like we want different things. Our bodies look different ways. You know, our hair is different. Our eyes are different, right? Like the way that we um, stir, Tea is different, right? All of these things are extraordinary and beautiful and, like, make us special and and create this robust, you know, um, possibility and this robust existence. This diversity is extraordinarily threatening to our culture um, because, right, our culture seeks to make us pliable and homogenous. Um, that individuality is a threat. And so I think it's important to to really... A, name that, right? Like recognize that the culture is not particularly invested in us being the unique special snowflakes living in our power and desire that we all deserve, right? That's not the culture's agenda. Um, The culture's agenda is to maintain itself by any means necessary, right? Um, And so, but like all that to say, I see hunger as this extraordinary manifestation of, desire. And what is diet culture doing? It's telling you to question and to suppress your hunger, which I feel is tantamount to telling you to suppress your desire. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't. Know. I'm gonna leave it at that because I could talk for a thousand hours about it. But did that make sense? It totally <laughs> makes sense. It's
1: it's something. I mean, and even outside of the conversations around food and weight and all of that, that this idea of desire is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Which is probably why it pinged for me. You know, any sort of talk, and I think it's it's usually directed at women, like, oh, you're too much, or she's too much, and that's something that I've yeah. heard a lot in different arenas. And so much of that, like w- what you were just saying, you know, about diet culture, this idea that you know. Compliance and sticking to the system, and like, you know, tr- following, you know, let's say dieting or trying to be smaller, any of those things, like that's rewarded. That behavior is rewarded. So, like, this, su- what the yeah. suppression of hunger and desire, which essentially is what that is, we, it's like dieting doesn't work, sure, but it does work in terms of getting access to like more praise around it or any of these other things. Like, that is an accepted behavior, right? It's a thing to do. And so, it's like anytime that you're going to step out. Of that and be like, wait, hang on. Like, I'm hungry for stuff. I'm hungry for food. I'm hungry for sex. I'm hungry for, you know, being able to voice my opinions. Right. And then you get faced with the criticisms of, well, you know, she's too loud. She's too bossy. She's too fat. She's too slutty. Any of these things like that, I think it all is rooted in this desire and that there is this fear as women of what would even happen if I let myself want what I wanted. That seems very scary. And I think for good reason. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, I completely agree. Like, yes, it's yes, the behavior of submission is highly rewarded. Um, There's rewards all around us for being a good girl. Right. And so um, that and, and like, I guess what's interesting, right, there are socially sanctioned rewards for being a good girl. And then there's like a secret world of rewards that are not advertised that you get if you're not a good girl, right? But, like, the culture is not about showing you what's behind door number two, of course. <laughs> it's, like, I'm living in door number two land, yet and it's amazing. Yeah. Um. But, right, like, yes, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, right, and, I mean, this is another thing that I've noticed, and I, and I think I kind of allude to it in the book, but, like, that I've noticed um, women will actually – um like, I kind of, I mean, I I use the word, like, they'll hobble themselves. Like, women will actually sabotage themselves and their desires, and they won't inquire, and they won't act on things intentionally sometimes, because they are afraid of behaving that way. Like, there are certainly, there are certainly people who are maybe pre-consciousness around, like, what, what's happening, like the social rewards and punishments. Um, and then there are people who are post-consciousness and are actively sabotaging their understanding because they know the, because they're, you know, they're afraid and the culture has made them afraid. Right. Um, and I think that that's, I mean, that's important to, to name, right? Like it's okay. It's okay to look outward onto the culture and be suspicious. I mean, I think I've been telling a lot of people. I'm like, I, I need people to stop looking at the culture as some kind of benevolent patriarch and start looking as the at the culture as more of a sleazy salesman. And and right, like the salesman might have one or two things in his suitcase that might be of interest, but everything else is trash. And you need to just kind of approach with that sort of level of trepidation and suspicion um, and I think it's like useful to kind of have that framework right like and that's that's a big I think a lot, another big goal for the book was that shift away from like okay we need to stop looking at the culture as something that's like inherently on our side and wants us to do well and recognize right the reality of no matter what the culture is saying no matter what always commercials are saying no matter what Dove is telling you at the end of the day women are likelier to be sexually assaulted than live robust, incredible lives. Right? Not that they're mutually exclusive, but like at the end of the day, if we're talking about outcomes, right? Like a woman's more likely to be assaulted, like in her workplace or by someone who knows her on a date than she is to like live a happy life on her terms. And that's the reality of
1: our culture. And we need to stop pretending that it isn't. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's even in like the, the dieting context, it's the shift from what's wrong with me that I can't make this work, this being dieting to like, hang on, actually dieting is bullshit. Like the, the culture is the problem. I am not the problem.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, can you talk about why the book is focused not just on memoir and your personal story, which you obviously do a lot of honest sharing, but also focused on cultural criticism and feminist theory?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is frustrating to me as as like a lady writer <laughs> is that there's a lot of pressure if you're in the nonfiction world um, to create only memoir. Like, there are a lot of smart lady writers who could be writing cultural criticism, who could be writing feminist theory, but are essentially pressured by the industry to only write memoir. And and I think there's a lot of purposes around this, right? Like, first of all, I mean definitely there's this real I mean, obviously people love to hear and read people's stories, right? They're fascinating, they're captivating, they they like they touch us and move us in these amazing ways. However, right, like the individual story is important and it has resonance, but like for me taking it to the, the next level, cultural criticism, how do we move away from like just seeing this as one person's story to sort of seeing hundreds, thousands of people's stories in a group and making some connections, right? It's like, huh, okay. So I'm reading like 400 memoirs about women's relationship to food and how complicated it is um, and how difficult, you know, they their like weight struggle might be, or their weight feelings might be, um, and you know, and and that's powerful. But like, what I wanted to do was really take it to sort of that that eagle eye perspective. Like, how can we look at the commonalities between and among women and make some conclusions about what what might be happening um, on a cultural scale? And on top of that. Like, connect the history piece, connect like the sort of global politic piece and and really kind of try to answer the question like, this is your lived reality. That's important as an individual. But like, did you know that there is, in fact, millions of women who are doing the same behavior and that we can make these grander connections between these behaviors? And like through making those connections, Number one, gain a language that we can use to articulate our realities. And number two, begin to have a more critical, slightly more distant relationship to the culture in which we find ourselves.
1: Yeah, I think that that's incredibly well said because it's like a both and where it's really empowering to hear people tell their stories, especially if, you know, that's the first time that you have felt represented or you feel seen or that like that element yeah. of it, I think is really important, which you're speaking to. And that being able to get a little bit of distance from just the like, let's bear all of our trauma type of situation and look more critically. I find that that is empowering also because yes, change at the individual level is fantastic. And also the actual level like larger sweeping changes can only really happen and need to happen at such a bigger level that requires that cultural criticism. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So pivoting, I mean, slightly, um, something else that I would love for you to talk about is your experience of, and I don't even know what the right language is to use, but giving up maybe or mourning the thin fantasy.
0: Yes. I mean, um, I wrote this piece called, you know, killing the thin fantasy. Um, and Gosh, I mean, so what is right, like what we need like what's important to recognize is uh like when we're trying to rid ourselves of the fantasy of becoming a thin person. Actually, let me back up and say, right, science, statistics, all the things, right, indicate that the body that we have right now. Is likely the body that we're going to have forever, right? Um, without some kind of like really uh, extreme intervention, like uh, like a like a an illness or something like that, chances are we're going to have, if you have a fat body, you're going to have a fat body until the day that you die, right? And I think for me, as someone who was deep in fat phobia and diet culture for two decades, as I mentioned, uh, the thin fantasy, the idea that someday I would be a thin person, um, motivated me extraordinarily. Why? Um, Because I was told that Uh, that in order to matter, in order to have love and visibility and and respect, that I had to be a thin person, right? And like, obviously, who doesn't want love, visibility and respect, right? Like, literally no one doesn't want that. Um, So it's like, I kind of held on to that. And I, and right, like, and this looked like really specific ways, right? Not only, you know, dieting constantly, calorically restricting, weight cycling, exercising past the point of exhaustion. It looked like, Um, whenever I envisioned my future, I looked radically different. Whenever I envisioned, you know, myself like in a meaningful partnership, I was a thin person whenever I imagined myself at the beach on a vacation. I was a thin person. When I imagined myself, you know, maybe having a family, I was a thin person, right? And like, so um, when you're a fat person, this is extraordinarily damaging, because you're just refusing, you're self-annihilating, you're like destroying yourself in the name of, again, love, and belonging, and respect. For me, you know, one of the the most powerful things I began to do as I was healing from all of that um, was to push myself, to imagine myself at like 40, 50, 60 in a fat body. Like imagine myself in meaningful partnership in a fat body. Imagine myself on the beach in a fat body, right? Um, all these kinds of things. And like, And to really Push myself to position myself to force my my existence, my fat existence, into the future where it's so taboo, right? Like because I think I think I can say with, fair, with you know quite a bit of certitude that in our culture, when our culture imagines itself in the future, everyone's a thin person, right? Like all these people who don't belong, like queers and you know like disabled people and whatever people who are marginalized um, in our in the culture's idea of itself, those people aren't there like we have this I mean that's terrifying right that's fucking terrifying but uh, but like I think that's the reality right like um and so anyway right of course So it's important I think to unpack to really interrogate what does that mean what is that about like why can't we imagine ourselves in the future and so right I, I write about how the thin fantasy is actually the dream of of belonging. It's the dream of suffering ending. It's the dream of like people looking at you and seeing you. And we've been taught that you can have that, but only if you're thin. And so, right, like it's important to to really look into that thin fantasy and say like, oh my God, this thin fantasy is not actually about being thin at all. It's about the the natural human desire to belong to your culture because your culture is your family. Like on some grand scale, it's a hugely dysfunctional family. Right. And I come from a dysfunctional family. America is not that different from my dysfunctional family. Right. Like, but no matter what, right. Like no matter how messed up and awful and shitty your family is, there is some part of you, like some little sacred baby angel part of you (laughs) that like, wants to be accepted by your family. That's totally normal. The culture takes that knowledge and exploits you with that knowledge, right? In the same way that a fucked up dysfunctional family would, (laughs) right? And like, sometimes we can't even access that desire. We can't even access that we're behaving from that place, but we are right. And so like, I encourage people to, um, to like Except that it's normal, natural human to want to, like, be accepted and to not be abused and to not be, like, refused being taken seriously as a romantic partner or, like, a colleague or any number of things that fat phobia does, right? Like, those things are real. Those things are important. Those things, like, the redemption of your existence, your full humanity is not going to come through diet culture. It's not going to come through being thin. That is a lie.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because all that's doing is like abusing yourself to fit into the system that already does not accept you
0: yeah I mean it's essentially like I mean I think there's this like under there's this belief right that with diet culture that you like once you become thin then you have all the things then you can live this amazing life and it's like no girl once you get thin you gotta like you gotta stay thin right like you gotta stay thin by any means necessary and because the human body doesn't like doing that at best on how it is naturally you have to do progressively weirder and more intense shit to keep it at that same size and and like it just it's like I mean literally I think you end up kind of eating your alive. Like your body ends up kind of having to eat itself alive. And, uh, yeah, don't, don't want that. Like, I mean, I, I really feel like if you sit down and think about it, you don't want that.
1: Also, I mean, it's, that is exhausting. Like what you're describing this, like how many other things could you be doing with your time and energy and creativity and intellect than like using yes. all of your resources to try to attain and then maintain a smaller body? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Whew. <laughs> Girl, <laughs> So much. Um, so I want to circle back to something that you were talking about before about thinness as a secondary characteristic, like the conduct the connections that you have been making between diet culture and rape culture and sexism. And again, that idea that thinness is the secondary characteristic with the real commodity being female submission. Can you go into that in a little bit more detail?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was really important for me to write in the book about the connections between rape culture and diet culture. And in fact, um, in the fall, I'm going to be talking about that in Maine at this conference about the ways that like diet culture, uh, you know, and and rape culture feed one another. Um, Essentially, right. The ultimate goal of diet culture is to create submission um, Right, like the the beauty standard, et cetera. We naturalize this idea of attraction and beauty and all this stuff, and we use language like "I just like that," it's just beautiful, it just looks good, right? We use kind of these naturalizing frameworks to um, essentially talk about what is a a socially constructed or like a make believe um, idea, right? But at the end of the day, what is really happening is that you know women who are on the uh, sort of on the weight loss train on the diet train or who are thin bodied are essentially receiving social rewards because they are submitting to the cultural expectation of female um submission right of like female obedience and i want to kind of quote this sociologist and i quote him in the book his name is Sander Gilman and um he writes about how um you know Essentially, dieting is a way that women express to their culture that they understand their role and are willing to accept it. Mm. And I mean, reading that line, you know, when I was doing research um, for the book and doing research before the book for other things really sort of stopped me dead in my tracks. I felt like he really was articulating a truth that I had sensed, but that I hadn't been able to really bring into language. And Right. So like, I think that, um, I don't know, like when I'm talking about in the chapter where I talk about masculinity and how like bros love thin women, right. Um, (laughs) right. I'm talking about this like really specific way that what we think is the desire for a thin body, um, is actually the desire for women to be good girls and that women get a lot of social rewards when we play along, when we, when we sort of play the game. Um, and that thinness is a symbol of us being willing to play that game. And that dieting is a symbol of us, like, um, trying to, trying to be that good girl, you know?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I think I think there's something here that that's that's really interesting. Like, I mean, and uh, this loops into something else you talk about in the book about this, like how we're taught that men are the key to happiness and fulfillment. And I've been thinking about this just in terms of couple privilege in terms of marriage privilege. I've started to, I'm, I've am i been married almost five years. Next year will be five years. And I've started to think about how people treat me differently now versus before. Yes. And just like things that I wasn't really aware of. And like this idea that, that you talk about that, you know, if we're taught that men are the key to happiness and fulfillment, and then sort of with that, the fear that without heterosexual marriage or, you know, having children or anything like that, that we can't, be seen as people who really matter or that we're not quote real adults like that really hit home with me that like we've set up these and I think this is I mean related to and also separate from the diet culture thing that we've set up these sort of benchmarks of adulthood and success right like you go along this escalator and you meet this man and you date and then you move in together and then you get engaged and then you get married and then you have kids right the whole relationship escalator thing and that it's like people do they take you more seriously as a woman who is in a marriage to a man.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean essentially these these are like the right like home ownership, marriage, childbearing. These are all things that are considered, you know, um cultural touchstones. They're considered because they're the very they're the very stones that build our culture, right? Like they they all involve um, a high level of engagement with social institutions, cultural institutions. Um, so yeah, it makes complete sense that those are, those are the things that make you a quote unquote real adult. Mm
1: -hmm. Where do you see the link between those types of things and then self destructive behavior like dieting?
0: Yeah. I mean, first of all, everyone wants to be real, right? Like, like I think this, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about fatness actually and, and that, and the, and the concept of realness. Um, and other people have written about this, like other scholars have written about this, but like, you know, one of the things that's interesting about fat people is that we, um, through fat phobia, we end up kind of ultimately interrupting this escalator, right? Because like, you mm-hmm. know, I might be, for example, for me, I yes, I'm a woman and I date men and I, I potentially might marry a man, um, but right, like, because I'm fat, that throws this weird wrench into desire, right? And like all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm not as desirable as a fat woman, um, and so my marriage um, is stalled because of fat phobia, right? And like, and because my marriage is stalled, now I'm like kind of interrupting this like trajectory of my life as a woman, right? And it's very upsetting to the culture, right? That I'm like that I'm interrupting, you know, even though even though fat phobia isn't my own creation, right? But like um, that I'm Interrupting the flow. And, and the idea is that I should become thin so that I can become a streamlined part of the culture so that I can be real. Right. And I think it, it goes back to this other thing I was talking about before where I could not imagine my body as it existed now in the future. Um, right. Like this is about realness. Right. This is about like the idea that like my real life will start when I'm thin. Um, Right now I'm not living my real life or like this isn't my real body There's another body a thin body inside of me that real body. I have to liberate it I have to free it from the prison of my fatness, right? Um, So like I don't know I kind of I kind of been thinking a lot about this idea of like real adulthood like a real grown-up or or a real woman or whatever and how these kind of concepts get tossed around in our culture. Um, oh my God, I've completely lost track of the question. Can
1: you tell me what the question was one more time? No, no, but the, I mean, <laughs> first of all, like I said, we can go down as many rabbit holes as you want, but I mean, yes. it, essentially, it essentially is the answer to this and, and any other questions, this idea that like when we decide on a standard of what it means to live your real life or anything like that, right? And huge air quotes that of course, then it's just other things to submit to or to like put, like not prioritize your own desires and ambitions and stuff until you reach some Um, like mythical place, whether that's thinness or something else. And um, uh, what was my question? My question was, oh, we were talking about, you know, this, these touchstone things, you know, marriage, you said homeownership, child rearing, you know, men being the key to happiness and fulfillment and like how, and, you know, wanting to be seen as a real adult and how those things and sort of the fear and desire for those things leads so easily into self-destructive behavior, like dieting.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. So, like, yeah, we're kind of taught that there's one way, largely, um, to achieve success or realness or to be the kind of person who matters. Um, Again, this goes back to the sense of belonging, which we all want, you know, on, on kind of a deep spiritual level, we want to be a part of our culture. We want to be a part of our family. Um, and so what ends up happening, right? What the family or the culture asks you to do is to sort of smooth out your edges, right? Um, whatever makes you stand out, mm, the culture is like, why don't you sand those down a little bit? you're a little loud, you're a little big. Um, those things aren't going to lead to you getting approval from us. Daddy doesn't like that. (laughs) And so why don't you just like sand down your edges and then you can like more easily, literally if you kind of physically can imagine, right? Like this assembly line or this like streamline or whatever. Um, right. Like the edges get caught the edges get caught on the sides um, there's not room for there's not room for difference there's only room for conformity there's only room for homogeneity right um, and on top of that like not only are you feeling that sense of like oh um, I want to belong I want to be seen I want to be substantiated but there's also a lot of cultural social discipline that's happening um, you know I'll, I'll speak to myself as a fat woman right like there's a lot of social discipline that I receive as a fat woman and it comes in the form of like watching fat women on you know in media being treated really poorly or with with inhumanity um, like watching my friends hearing about fat women being treated really poorly as romantic partners and on top of that things like street harassment um, like not being taken seriously uh, in the workplace etc right and so right like so we're kind of in this bottlenecking situation where we're getting punished on the one side um, through a lot of sometimes subtle social things and then we're also being told look at all that you could have all of this amazing love and acceptance that every human wants right so it kind of creates this bottlenecking situation where um self-destruction kind of becomes an inevitable outcome because what you're doing is right you're you're sort of trying to shave off the things that make you you in order to you know stop being punished and to reap rewards and the culture is very, 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 very good. It has it's had a lot of historical practice at sort of creating a lot of incentives and disincentives for you to do exactly what it needs you to do to maintain itself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think uh, for me, it's like right when when like the carrot is that you get to feel like you belong and that you're loved, um, right like people are going to do whatever they have to do to get that if they believe that that's the end goal. And if like, if people say all you have to do is like, you know, not eat or starve yourself or do whatever you have to do to look a certain way, you know, people will do it because they want to feel that love
1: and that acceptance. Yeah. I mean, that that being like this love and belonging being core human needs. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Something that you um, just mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago about um, either seeing it in media or talking in fr- with friends about this idea of fat women being treated differently as romantic partners that's pinging something for me. I don't know if it was from one of your columns that you write for, is it Ravishly, the yeah. website? I think, and, and I remember reading something that you wrote about that. That is, I don't know if it was either like talking to, like different women that were like dating or sleeping with the same man and seeing that they had different treatment. Am I like misremembering that? Yes. Can it's you really talk about that yes. a little bit? Cause I remember, yeah, I, I read that and I think it was a while ago, but when you just said that, that brought that back into my mind.
0: Yeah. It was an article about solidarity between thin women and fat women. And I had, I had had two different situations where I had talked to women, fat women um, who had decided that they were going to start talking to their thin friends about their sex lives and and they found that um they had overlap their they had lovers overlap. Um, some of them were poly or single and kind of like you know experimenting. But what they found was as they were discussing was um that like the thin women got treated differently or were and in some cases like different sexual acts were offered to the thin women than the fat women. So for example, like oral sex, like receptive oral sex was on the table for the thin women, but not the fat women. And as they began to speak to one another, right. Um, and, the, you know, and I think like, first of all, to, Um, to exchange that kind of information is such an amazing radical act, right? Like to exchange specifically, like to strategically kind of go in and say, let's talk about who we're sleeping with by name um, (laughs) and like by images and really compare, like, and talk about this, right? Like, and that's such an act of intimacy in my mind, right? Um, And then to sort of, and then what was Amazing and and feminist and extraordinary was that, like, as they were having these conversations, that the thin women became enraged by this injustice, Um, that the thin women kind of stepped up and told the fat women that they thought this was horrible, that they wanted to strategize around how to create accountability from these partners. And I mean, for me, right? Like this is, this is like next level because it's the culture teaches us one that like women shouldn't share this kind of information, right? Like two that, like if, if another woman is getting treated more poorly than you, then you should feel proud of yourself and feel special. Yes. This is like uh, bullshit, right? Yes. This is obviously patriarchy, garbage, like total, not real stuff. Um, <laughs> and so, Right, but, like we're so inculcated, we're so overwhelmed by this kind of social messaging that we should constantly be competing with other women um for like re- limited quote unquote allegedly limited resources such as dudes that like you know it, it was extraordinary to me that these women were sort of like capable like and and like excited about. Bypassing this, like very, very, very strong cultural education they had received, right? I mean, I think that's extraordinary. So the point is, they then the, the thin women were leading the charge on accountability to these people, and were like literally volunteering to be like, okay, we're going to bring this person to justice. How do how do you envision this happening, right? And so what they found, what they were doing was collective, like, using their collective power essentially as two women to sort of say like listen, I'm not sleeping with you anymore and I'm gonna tell every single person I know what your name is and what you look like and I'm gonna tell them exactly what happened yeah and then it's like and then if you kind of want to do some kind of restorative justice with both of us, then let's discuss that down the road. Um, and so I just I just was like and me this is like next level Greek, you know greek theater sort of stuff right so, like, i just anyway i love that story so much right in both the contexts all the women who were involved were queer women and I think that matters and bears noting. And, you know, I, I just, I just like, I really, really sort of, I mean, okay, I'm going to share a realization with you that I had recently that like kind of blew my damn mind. And I, I don't know if it holds resonance for you. I'm curious what you think about it. But I was like realizing, right, like one of the things that happens among straight women in particular is right, like this idea that through proximity, like through a romantic adjacency to a man we become more important we become more armed in the like war of heterosexuality or whatever um we become like more visible and we become people who matter but here's what i was here's what was tripping me out matter to who right like at the end of the day we're mostly performing this for other women right like (laughs) we're not doing this for men like we're not like hanging out with dudes and like publicly parading our dude around for other men we're doing it for ladies and i was like oh my god how extraordinarily intimate how like in fact very queer that is and like how i mean how like odd it all is like right, that we're like actually going to all these extraordinary lengths like buying expensive purses and like doing our hair and getting blowouts and wearing amazing lipstick we're doing it for each other on some like grand level and even though right unfortunately what patriarchy does is it renders that intimacy through into jealousy when in fact when in fact like all i want to do is like live my whole life so you can see it and I want to see your life and these like dudes are just like these weird incidental characters actually.
1: Um, I mean, do you feel resonance with this at all? Yeah, I definitely I definitely do. It's, But I mean, I think this is the, sort of the underpinning of what you were saying, why it was so powerful for these friends of yours, these women to come together and share honestly about their sexual experiences and about these dudes. Yes. I think that there's a parallel also to talking about money, right? Like how much did you get paid for, you know, writing for this publication yes. or how, you know, that type of stuff. And there's a reason that culturally sex and money are like two of the things that especially as women, it's not ladylike to talk about. Because if you're in your own vacuum, Vacuum bubble where you don't know what's happening in other people's bedrooms or you don't know you know what's happening in other people's paychecks that it does keep you small and it like once you start to share this information then yeah that like righteous indignation that is very well deserved like comes up and so it's like being able to pivot away like you said from seeing other women as competition right that if we have been told hey you know love by hetero men is a limited resource and you need to sort of outperform each other in order to get it like stepping away from that to be like okay if i don't believe that's true if i'm no longer gonna ever be someone who says like i'm not like other women or whatever bullshit that is that like it changes the game completely and like hey let's come together let's share resources yeah let's talk about sex let's talk about money let's talk about all these things and like yeah be the girl army
0: Yeah, totally. And I think, like, it's through, I mean, I think diet culture feeds into, um, you know, for me, right, like, a lot of times competition between women, I think, boils down to this extraordinary internalized sense of dehumanization, where it's like we literally see each other as units who are competing for other Units, right, or something, or resources, or prizes, or whatever. Um, and we, and this, I mean, I think what, what sort of die culture, patriarchy, sexism, etc. What they do is they they render us kind of like these automatons um, who are right, like one for one, competing for resources that aren't actually a resources and b like um, b like they're not scarce. Um, and, and I don't know, like I've, I've always sort of felt like that um, that way in which we're encouraged to compare ourselves to one another and feel jealousy and create pecking order and hierarchy and whatever, um, is this horrible outcome of the way in which we're taught to see ourselves as less than human, right? Because like if we fully saw ourselves um, as human, right we would fully see the women around us as as robust, unique, extraordinary humans who like only can add to our lives through their, through like through our shared humanity. You know what I
1: mean? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think, and that's some of the most dangerous part of everything that we're talking about is not just the sort of external sexism or misogyny, but the ways that they quietly, but very powerfully become internalized that then we're treating ourselves that way. Like the outside culture doesn't even have to quote, keep us in our place anymore because it's stuff that we do to ourselves and to each other. Yeah, absolutely. So this might be, um, I don't know, kind of a, a strange question or like a, a complete pivot, but. I was talking to a couple of the members of the Patreon community, knowing that this season of the show all features past guests. And when I mentioned that you were coming back on the show, um, one of the women in the community who asked not to have (laughs) her name attached to this question, but she was like, can you talk to Virgie about, and then like spilled this out. So what she she said in this, having listened to your first episode, that this idea of, you know, fuck diet culture, I'm going to step away from that, you know, like uh, not using weight as a matter of judgment other people. She's like, all of that sounds amazing. And she said that she has been able to adopt that mindset more when it comes to other people than when it comes to herself and wanted to know if that's something that you'd be willing to talk about this idea of like, okay, it's all good for me to, you know, accept other people's bodies or whatever. I don't remember the exact using wording that she used. Um, but I'm still having trouble doing that for myself is what she said.
0: You know, I actually just had a conversation about this with my friend Isabel Fox and Duke, and we kind of came to the same conclusion, which is like, that's a myth. There's not a reality in which you only have internalized fat phobia towards yourself. So I don't mean to like make this person uncomfortable or call them out, but (laughs) simply to sort of like question and push back on this supposition, on this, on this proposition that you only feel fat phobia towards yourself. It just isn't real. Right. Like at the end of the day, right. If you have internalized fat phobia, you have internalized fat phobia. And I think that there's ways in which like, I don't know, for me, like for sure, there's a couple thoughts I'm having. Like number one, um, it's, I think our gender education teaches us to use that kind of line, right? I think like, I think that it's very acceptable and it's very lauded among women to sort of be like, I just don't feel good about myself. I don't have this like greater um, outlook on others and on life, but I only have it towards me, right? There's something kind of like martyrdom-y and like very feminine about that. Um, So I understand that the, the impulse to sort of use the, to sort of use that framework or use that line. But, um, but I don't know, I think, I think it's important to kind of push back, um, and sort of say like, it's likely that you, that like that you or whoever might feel this way, that, that maybe this worldview doesn't actually just apply to you, that you actually do have maybe, um, some interrogation to do. And I think also, right. Like the other thing I was going to say is it's likely that you feel more judgment towards yourself than you do towards others across the board, right? Mm-hmm. But specifically, um, if those attitudes are manifesting in fat phobia, that means that like you likely have a fatphobic worldview um, generally, not just towards yourself, but it might just be more intensified internally.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I th- I think that's a really good point. I wasn't sure what you were going to say to this, but what you just said makes a lot of sense. I also think, and I, I don't know wh- wh- what your feelings are about this, but my, what came up for me when I was reading her question, um, in my email, in my inbox was this idea that, well, of course it's going to be a hard thing to let go of personally, because like we, like you pointed out before, um, like, what am I trying to say that it you're essentially like letting go of the acknowledgement that behaving in a certain way or like trying for thinness, like does, as we said, like get you certain cultural things. So it's like, I can yes. see how it would be something that's more difficult to let go of. Cause you're like, but I want those things, <laughs> you know what I mean? So like what you just said makes a yes. lot of sense. Yeah.
0: Yes, totally. And I think there is maybe like, I don't know. I think sometimes it feels like, you know, sometimes it feels like everyone is just stronger than me, or everyone is just better at this than me. And again, this is like an internalized sexist belief, you know, but to really give yourself more credit and say, like, you have the resources, you have the wisdom, you have the life experience. There's not like, especially unique characteristics that other people have. Like there's not especially unique characteristics that I have that I can do this work and that other people cannot. Right. And so um, to really give yourself more credit around like, Remember, you know, that we all have these amazing wellsprings of, of like strength and knowledge and insight and fortitude that maybe we're a little bit afraid to access and, and it's okay to be afraid, right? But like at the end of the day, um, if you want that freedom, if you want that liberation, um, you might have to overcome a little bit of that fear hump, um, to get to the other side.
1: Mhm. Yeah, which I mean circles all the way back to the beginning of the conversation what you were saying about your family and like making that hard decision to step back from that like there I don't know anything that's worth having or getting to the other side of like there's always going to be a fear and pain and grief and like there's something that you have to go through because if there wasn't then you would have done it already.
0: Yes, absolutely, right? And like I mean there's there's this line um in this um book that I've been reading, right? And it's about um, like it's about like magic, right? And it's, it was like, there's no, there's no manifestation without sacrifice, right? There's like extraordinary magic that we have inside of us. There is no, there is no magic. There is no manifestation without sacrifice. Right. And like, and and like, I mean, in my opinion, what I found in my life, the magic, the manifestations, um, those things are significant, like way worth it. Right. But like, don't, don't fool yourself into believing that you'll lose nothing. And I think that like, um, right. What we end up losing, in my opinion, is, is, is not worth having, right. Like these kinds of conditional acceptance is conditional, very, um, quite, you know, controlling expectation from the culture and the, and the accolades you get for giving in and self-destructing, right. Like I don't think those things are worth it, but But we've been taught they're really, 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 really important. They're how we maintain cultural legibility. They're how we maintain mattering. Um, And so, right, like, there is the – that is the sacrifice. The sacrifice is that you don't get to be a good girl in a culture where there's not room for bad girls, you know?
1: yeah that's so well said i mean it even goes back to the word choice that we were talking about before this idea of mourning the thin fantasy like even if yes. the thing is broken or self-destructive or you know logically not working and you believe or at least just hope that 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 magic that you're talking about that's going to manifest on the other side of stepping away from whatever that is it doesn't mean there's nothing wrong for you with you if it's hard to do that there's nothing wrong with you yes. if there's some grief involved in that like i think that there is like whether it's thinness or a certain amount of money or I think everyone has their own version of the I'll be happy when syndrome. Like everything yes. will be, you know, better when, you know, like when you were saying when you imagine yourself in the future, you know, that, or you used to imagine yourself in the future that that person is it was in a thin body. I think that's true with a lot of different things. Like we all have our thing, right? And so it's like- yeah letting go of that, especially if that thing and that fantasy has been something that has sustained you, like you said, for decades, there's no way that that's not going to be a painful process. Like, this can Mm -hmm. like, and I think that when you were talking about your goal with this book of, you know, opening women's eyelids, right, That's like really kind of a a wonderfully aggressive image, that I think it's it can work like that, where you learn something or you hear something and then you can never unlearn it or unsee it, and then still, it's not an overnight thing of making changes that are like these deep rooted like deeply rooted as far as culture goes
0: right yes yes exactly and i mean right like we're talking about right like i think the reason why it hurts and it's scary is because we're talking about humanity itself right like you've been trained by the culture to be like a proto-human um like somebody who's mostly there to like you know kind of keep the wheels going and that's like a proto-human reality right um what we're talking about, like, like, what is, I don't know, like, we've been taught to be afraid of our humanity. That's what in my opinion, a big part of what diet culture is about, right? Like hunger is about being human. When you demand or ask someone to extinguish their hunger, you ask them to be not fully human, right? And so like, of course, we're terror and our culture has a very robust history of being terrified of the things that make us the most human, right? Like in the West, there is this Scary and long history of um controlling sexuality of controlling food of controlling hunger again, these like very very human realities, these very human things, and so we 've been trained to feel terrified, especially in the u s where we 're like afraid of touching one another we 're afraid of like contaminating anything we're we're like we're a compulsively hand washing culture right um and so right like these are things that are realities of of like the very culture of we're, of which we're a part we've been taught that the things that make you human are liabilities right if you like use your body to think instead of your head liability if you're hungry all the time liability you want to have sex liability unless it's outside of like marriage, child rearing or like particular social situations that are like, okay. Right. Um, so again, if we kind of go through the list of like what makes us the most human, you'll see this is the same list of what I have been taught to be ashamed of. Um, and so rate, right, like what is, what is really at stake here? is the very nature of humans um and and like fighting for that and of course it's scary right because like what does it mean to say listen whatever the culture is peddling i'm not super interested i'm gonna forge my own path that is so scary right because all of a sudden you're like on a road that doesn't have a doesn't have a cement there's just there might be a bunch of trees i don't know like there might be grass it's scary um Right. And, and so I just think it's important, like you're saying to recognize it is a daunting task. It's okay if it feels that way. In fact, it's like likely that it will feel that way. And also to say that, like, if you're, if you're looking at that path, if you've kind of like gone off, if you sort of realize something's wrong with the path, the culture has set out for you, or if it doesn't feel right, I, I always tell people that that other path is probably inevitable for you. And it's okay to just surrender and say like, you know, cause I mean, I, I, I think like a lot of people who are already kind of on that other path, they don't give themselves enough credit. They don't recognize they're already on that path and they're already intrepid and they're already brave and that they, that they already have the tools to keep forging that path. Like if you're listening to this podcast, you're already in the forest. You're not, in, you're not on the paved road anymore. And you just stop pretending you are, you know what I
1: mean? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) Well, I mean, in that, because it speaks to like the nuance and the messiness and the like circuitous route that like, even by the nature of asking these questions and like having this dialogue with yourself, with other people, like you're not on the path anymore. Yeah. So it started. I'm curious if there was anything that came up for you while you were like through the process of writing this book, like either anything you learned about yourself or in general or something that shifted for you just through the process of digging into this in such a systematic way
0: yeah you know um when i when I have gone back and read the book after I wrote it um there's there are definitely these moments where I'm like, oh my God, you were channeling something right like this is it, where where the words don't even feel like they're entirely my own and that you know, for me, that's that's always an extraordinary experience, right? Because um, I do see myself as someone who is a, sort of a messenger of sorts, right? I see myself as my greatest contribution to you know my culture, the planet, whatever. Um, my my circle of activism is that I I offer language to feelings, um, and through that process, I attempt to you know affirm the feeling and, and I attempt to, you know, give us the power of articulating our own reality. And so I think that that channeling process was a, was special and extraordinary. And I think also one of the things that surprised me, I mean, I, I'm deeply aware of how passionate I am about this issue. Um, I'm a very committed person. I'm a very justice-oriented person. But even with that, I was taken aback and kind of moved by the urgency that I can read in the words. I mean, I'm so—it just became really clear to me as I was writing it and then as I was reading it in retrospect that, you know, I'm really, really, really committed to and invested in women living the lives that we have access to I mean I, I can't tell you right? I feel like you know and, and to return actually to my childhood my role kind of in life I think has always been um, someone who moves resources like I mean, I was telling my friends I see myself as a little bit of like a feminist Robin Hood right where I'm like oh my God guess what I learned when I, when I was in grad school about the culture and guess what I'm like bringing all the knowledge in this tiny beautiful cheetah print sack over to my friends (laughs) and and rate. Like I kind of, that's what I see as the book. And I I feel like, you know, in that process of me accumulating information and bringing it back to my community. Um, and in this book, like this larger population of people, I feel like I'm literally running between these two entities because I literally, it makes me so, it like pains me to know that so many women are living for an, an, an other minute in suffering when they don't have to. Um, And so I think that like that, sense of urgency, like kind of surprised and humbled me, even though I'm aware of like how committed I am, but like seeing it in this documented form, I'm like, oh my God, like, you know, my greatest wish is that, you know, everyone can come to this party that I found, um, that every single woman can stop hating herself, that every single woman can like, you know, wear whatever she wants. that Every single woman can like look at another woman and see um, love and not see competition that Every single woman could look at herself and see you know extraordinary beauty and and art and and that every woman can you know wake up in the morning and her first thought be like, "Oh my god like i 'm living in this magical place in this magical moment rather than "Oh my God, I hate what I look like. What do I need to do to not look like this and and so I think it was the process of of like writing and reflecting that gave me so much insight into how much of a priority like female women's liberation, like human liberation ultimately is to me.
1: Mm. Yeah. That's so beautiful. That could be a good place to start to wrap up the way that we um, wrap up these. I don't know if you remember from last time or not, but it's uh, a series of sort of rapid fire ish questions. Essentially the community picks seven questions that all eight guests of the season answer the same seven totally random questions. If you're down for that.
0: Okay, let's do it.
1: Yeah, let's do it. Um, So the first question, what's one activity that you can always count on to make you feel good?
0: Um, Touching a tree or talking to my cactus lumpy.
1: (laughs) I love the specificity of that answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, let's fast forward five years and you're talking to your future self, or I guess rather your future self is talking to you. What advice does your future self give you for what to do right now?
0: I think that she's
1: telling me to get a Chihuahua. I think that that's a really good life choice. (laughs) As someone who's obsessed with your Instagram, I think that that would be a really nice addition too.
0: (laughs) obviously, obviously.
1: Oh my god, such a good life choice. Cactus and Chihuahua. That's the life. That's what's up. <laughs> um, who's one of your favorite people to follow on social media? Speaking of Instagram.
0: Um gosh, I'm trying to think of of like a specific account. Oh, okay, I know who it is. Um, their their name is Cesar Cummings, and they're a fat, queer fashion designer in LA, and their style is amazing. Um, so uh, I get a lot of inspo from their account.
1: Awesome. See, and this is how I find cool new people to follow. So that's awesome. <laughs> selfishly. Yeah. Um, what's one thing that helps you when you're feeling really overwhelmed and stressed?
0: I like pulling a card from the tarot deck or doing some meditation with different stones or drinking some fancy tea. Oh, and last thing, adding this, is something I'm going to tell you just to give away. I always have rose water in my cupboard. I add it to pretty much anything when I'm feeling blue and it is amazing. Add it to pancakes, add it to tea, add it to coffee, add it to your bubbly water. Just have fancy bubbly water. Um, so that's, that's just like a life, lesson I wanted to
1: share. I'm all about the fancy drinks, especially seven years sober, like having quit drinking so much of the thing that I miss was like sort of the ritual around cocktails or fancy drinks. And so for me, I was like, you know what? I'm going to spend as much money as I want on tea. I'm going to get one of those soda stream things. I'm going to make myself some fucking fancy water and like put fruit in it and do (laughs) like it's like really it's a small thing, but it's a form of self-care that makes me really happy. Yes. How do you typically spend the last hour of your day? What does that usually look like the hour before you go to bed?
0: Watching Bob's Burgers.
1: I love that. My husband loves that show. <laughs> <It's> so funny. <laughs> um, next question is about books, which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recently find yourself recommending or rereading most often?
0: Okay. Anything by James Baldwin. Um, my favorite book of his is another country. Mm -hmm. Very, 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 very good. And like, I think a very important work of American literature. Um, I'm currently reading carceral capitalism by Jackie Wang. Uh, it's very heady obviously. (laughs) Um, but I've just started reading it today. I'm like three pages in, it's already impacting me. Um, I love, uh, I love her writing and um, I love, you know, discussions of like capitalism and and the prison industrial complex, et cetera. Um, And Touchstone, fave, Miss Piggy's Guide to Life. It's amazing. She also has like a cookbook um, that's also quite good. So anything by Miss Piggy, super good. Super
1: recommend. Miss Piggy's Guide to Life, Rosewater and Chihuahuas and the Cactus. I'm 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 getting the full picture. It's really, it's it's a magnificent picture. I
0: think this is the summary of my life, essentially. (laughs) This is you
1: on a business card. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) Um, So last question. If you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take?
0: Yes. The question might be, what would freedom look like to you?
1: Hmm. That's a good one.
0: Cause for me, I'm like, my big demand in politics is freedom. I'm like, I don't want positivity. I want freedom. I don't want acceptance. I want freedom. And like, what, like it's, it's, a, it's been this like beautiful sort of ongoing writing exercise where I'm like, what does freedom look like? What does it taste like? What does it feel like? Like, what is my body doing and feeling like when I'm free, you know? And like, what are the environments where I feel closest to that? Um, so, that's the question I'd like to leave y'all with.
1: Mm-hmm. Such a good one. So, what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online and order the book? And do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? All of that, so I can make sure to put links in the show notes.
0: Yes. So, the book is out. Um, it is called You Have the Right to Remain Fat. Um, you can buy it anywhere books are sold. Amazon or feministpress.org. You can find me online at Virgitovar.com V-I-R-G-I-E, T-O-V Victor dot com and on Instagram at Virgie Tovar. I have a weekly column that comes out every Thursday called Take the Cake and that's on ravishly.com R-A-V-I-S-H-L-Y and finally I offer three times a year I offer a four week online course called Babe Camp which is designed for people who are ready to break up with diet culture and you can find out about that on my website.
1: Yeah and I will put links to all of that i'll also put um a link to your first episode when you were on the show last year because i remember that we talked about babe camp and some of like the more the other work that you do in more detail so in case folks haven't listened to that go back and do so virgie you're the best thank you so much thank you and that's our show for today thanks so much for listening and for being part of the real talk radio family Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Carrie. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Nicole. You ready to answer some questions? Absolutely. I have to say first, before we get into the questions, all of the outros that I've ever recorded have been on Skype. And uh-huh. so the fact that we are doing this in my home office feels like, I feel like everything's wrong. <laughs> so I'm like, what's happening? Why am I not on Skype? Like, why are you watching me record this? So okay. Fun. I can, I can look away. If no, that no, no, no. You're it better good. For it's, you. it's amazing. Okay. Hey, I wish I could record the entire podcast in person. It would be amazing. Um, okay. My favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now?
2: So... Like others on the outros, I had time to think about this because I saw this one coming. Um, And I'm kind of really obsessed with just summer this year because it is the first summer in a decade that I've been around and not like super isolated in Canada, um, where I used to own and operate a fishing lodge. So I'm just kind of really into all of the little daily things that happen in summer that I haven't been a part of necessarily so that's kind of what I'm obsessed with. I actually made a Summer of Carrie Greatest Hits checklist of things that I want to do this summer.
1: Oh my God. I'm really sad that I'm not going to be here for all of that. What's <laughs> well, one of, the things, on one of the things
2: on that list is visit Nicole on the PCT. Yes. So yeah.
1: yeah. That's, that's amazing. There, yeah. I was just thinking, um, I was talking to our mutual friend Carly the other day about how nice it will be next year. Both of us are going to try to not necessarily train for something huge. Right. Like she has her ultra marathon or whatever coming up and I have this hike and we went on a, like an eight mile hike last week, she and I, and like, that's not that much mileage compared to what I've been doing. Right. Right. And it was amazing. I was like, Oh, this is day hiking. You can, and we took a long break and we ate snacks and it was fun and we went home and it was a reasonable amount of time. I was like, The leisure
2: of just kind of doing those little things is, yeah, I'm all about that. Yeah.
1: I have a book, um, that I can lend you while I'm gone. If you want to, it's like the hundred best hikes of the central Cascades or something, Ooh, something yeah. like that. It's basically things to do in this area right. that I'm like, oh, I could just check them off. Yeah. Even if they're only three miles right. or if they're, you know. Like, yeah, well, so and I'm plus here we here.
2: just moved here last year to central Oregon. So there's so much to discover that just kind of feels like in our backyard. So
1: yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I love it. And I'm glad that coming to visit me on the PCT yes. is one of them. It is actually
2: <laughs> at the top of the list. Okay, well,
1: we, we will discuss where you are <laughs> okay. going to come because I'm really excited. Um, the next question, when it comes to money, what's one thing that you purposefully don't spend much money on? On, and then on the flip side, what's one thing that you feel like is a totally worthwhile splurge for you? Um, I don't
2: spend money on... I just don't really care about shopping, which seems kind of like a easy answer. I don't know. But last year in 2017, I... Kind of quit bringing new things into my life like across the board. Uh, And I never was a big shopper before that, but now it's just kind of an ingrained behavior change. And I just don't feel like it's a good use of my time or money as a resource. So that's kind of what I don't splurge on. But what I do splurge on is, um, Any kind of good food that I get to share with people that I love seems like a no brainer, especially when I'm with my mom. And uh, that's kind of one of our ways that we really can slow down and spend time with each other is to just like go out to a nice place. Preferably sit outside if possible and just like eat all of the things leisurely. That seems
1: like just take all of my money and I'll do that for I mean, hours. Same. That's <laughs> That's yeah. Um, if anything were possible, what's one of your big dreams or fantasies? Um.
2: So right now I have a pretty big goal that I'm working on. I was like, on. is she going to say what I think she's gonna say? Keep going to yeah. say? And this makes it seem all the more. Like real that it's out in the world. Uh, Right now I'm currently attempting to qualify for the Olympic marathon trials, um, which will happen, has to happen by sometime in January, 2020. So I have a little bit like in a year and a half to really shoot for that. That's a big reach goal dream of mine. Um, So I've been a runner for a long time. I ran competitively in college and then kind of stepped away from the elite level and I've just in the last like half year kind of re-upped my commitment to to training and um so I'm really excited to chase that big scary
1: Also you're crushing it lately it's like amazing to watch it happening
2: (laughs) for you. So um that seems kind of self-serving to say that is my goal but um That's that's something that I'm yeah that would be a dream for sure.
1: I'm all about women being self-serving and going after the things that they want. Go for it. Yeah. I will be there to cheer okay. you on. That's cool. amazing. Um, what's one thing that you would love to do between now and the end of the year?
2: Um, I would love to finish. So I'm currently working on a writing project that, um, that you've actually been a huge inspiration for me in kind of, hearing you talk about your Arizona trail riding project. Uh, last summer, my husband and my sister-in-law and I went, we did the entire Mississippi River. We've canoed in an 18 foot canoe <laughs> for seven weeks. Um, and so just kind of really trying to capture that story. I don't know exactly what the end project will look like, but I am committing to getting it down Um by the end of the year. I and when I get
1: it. home, I would very much like if we had like weekly writing dates. Yes. And, yeah. I we did that have, for
2: a while. And then, um, yeah, which is totally fair. Um, I've done a pretty good job of kind of staying on top of my writing practice, but that's an end of the year, like stay focused. Oh so. yeah, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. Um, last question. What's one specific thing that you wish people were more open and honest about?
2: I wish people were more open and honest about whether they really liked the work that they do.
1: Mm, interesting.
2: Um, so this is something that I've been thinking a lot about as I recently left my quote unquote job, like paying thing that I went to the office to do um, because it just was not meaningful to me and was kind of bringing up a lot of questions about where I'm spending my time and, um, and I was very fortunate that I had that choice to just kind of re pivot for right now. Um, but I'm, so I'm kind of just like, am I the only one that felt that way? Are people just going to the office because it's great? Or kind of what different um, versions of professional work or job kind of areas of people's lives look like? And I wish that we were more honest about if, if your current situation is really bringing meaning to your life.
1: Yeah. And, and sort of the nuance within that, that like, Cause f- I mean, yeah, it's great if you love what you do and it is really meaningful, but I mean, we work for money for the most part, right? Yeah. Like people yeah. need to earn money. Right. So it's like even more honesty around that of like, you know, this actually isn't that fulfilling, but it's not crushing my soul. It's not right. out of integrity. It's for the paycheck, whatever, right. or Hey, I'm working towards this thing. Or this is the thing I do on the side or just like more yeah. dialogue around. Like we spend the vast majority of our lives working. And yes. so I agree with you, like just having more honesty around like what that looks like. And the fact that even like the blanket advice of like find something that you love, I well, know. Like, first of all, that's not an option for everyone. And also, just yeah, yeah. more honesty, I agree with Yeah. You. Um, So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you are one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible, since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season, for which I am very grateful. And I would love for you to share two things. Um, first, why you decided to support the show, and then what you love most about being in our little community. So... Can
2: I tell a quick backstory real Of course.
1: Quick? Yes. <laughs> this is, it's the longest outro of all time, but I'm here I'm for sorry. it. No, don't be. It's amazing. Um,
2: so I had the distinct pleasure of actually meeting Nicole last fall, but prior to that, I was following along on your Arizona Trail journey via social media, and had no idea that I was in the same room as your husband, Paul, when he was randomly talking about this lady who had done something that I had just read about on Instagram. I'm like, this is nuts because I think I'm following this person. And he quickly told me that that person was you, his wife. Um, And so I, it just kind of like blew my mind that I now was Someone like you were someone that I got to know in real time and reality. <laughs> and so, and kind of like, and, and I had listened to your podcast a little bit. Uh And then just, you know, as soon as it kind of became like a clear, like, okay, this is someone that I really care about. They're doing really great work. And if it's as easy as I can just pay money to Patreon and it's a small piece of her getting to continue that work, it was very very important for me to do that. So
1: that means so much to me. Thanks. And have you had a favorite thing about our little
2: community? Uh, I love the Friday emails are probably the thing that I consistently uh, tap into as part of the, the real talk radio community. Uh, And I, I know that there are so many more aspects to what you provide to the community that I could definitely, um, do a better job of engaging with. But the emails are great. I look forward to them every Friday. And I think I have a little bit of a unique lens because I I know you, like I can come to your house and do outro <laughs> <laughs> and
1: Funny, which though, like, sounds like bragging, but no, no, it's no, really no. just like it must be funny that I read the email and then like come over. Yeah, I am like
2: so <laughs> that email I got this morning. It's uh,
1: yeah. yeah. No, that's uh,
2: which is great. And I think that it's um it's a good reminder for me to just kind of be more open and honest to people that I have the ability to see all the time, but also people that, um, maybe are just, I'm interacting with in a different way too. Yeah, so
1: I love that. Um, so obviously you live here in Bend, um, mm-hmm. but you have a social media link or something you want to share in case people want to say hi. Sure. Um, I'm on Instagram and it's Carrie Mac C A R R I E M A C K. So easy. I love it. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this and to everyone listening. If you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities opportunities and extras just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of eight dollars or more for each eight episode season honestly I can't tell you how much that support means to me and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one so until next time here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can and no matter what we're in this together